peace, namaste, and shalom. Everybody out there in dreamland, I am the beyond top secret Texan. Join me on my podcast, the Beyond Top Secret Texan podcast, where I explore the outer limits of human abilities, top secret military technologies, the reality of extraterrestrial Earth alliances, secret space wars, advanced cryptozoology, subjects of theosophic truth, esotericism, and the occult. Beyond the Top Secret Texan Podcast. everybody out there in dreamland this is rumors of instinct with a new episode of the rumors of instinct podcast beginning season two of the project thank you all very much for your support those who have supported me from the very beginning and i know you're still listening out there those that are this may be your first episode highly highly encourage you to check out the back archives the the previous episodes the portfolio of work I've done to catch up and to feel free to, to approach it at your leisure um, but I welcome you aboard I welcome you out there in dreamland namaste and shalom to every single one of you peace be unto you and your families God bless you all iron sharpens iron a friend sharpens a friend so thank you all very much uh, for supporting me either with just your listening with just your viewership um if you leave a like or subscribe to my YouTube channel, I'd greatly appreciate that. If you're following uh, via Anchor or Apple Podcast, um, download these episodes, uh, share them with your friends, uh, feel free to repost them wherever you please, wherever you think they get a lot of traffic. You know, you're getting the word out there. I greatly appreciate uh, you guys helping you form the community I am hoping to form, you know, helping to, to kind of get it off the ground and to... Um, create the vision into a reality of a dignified and respectful community to uh, share independent thought and objective criticism and things like that to actually, you know, figure out what's going on. And it's going to take a lot of eyes. It's going to take a lot of uh, different minds. But luckily, great minds think alike. And I think the, the mission of creating a respectful, dignified community of uh, counterculturalists is possible and needed in this, in this world right now. So if you would like to direct message me with any questions or to catch me on an exclusive live chat, uh, check out my Patreon, uh, patreon.com slash rumors of instinct podcast. It's uh, hard to pull up, but, you know, I'll leave the link and everything. Um, just go check out the Instagram. It'll have the link there. For as little as a dollar a month, you can gain access to the option to direct message me and communicate with me directly. You can catch uh, monthly live streams. I'm thinking about even doing them weekly uh, for Q&As and to kind of, uh, 
you know, uh, talk about the news and everything, reformatting my efforts and, and going into the future, figuring out how to best uh, spend my time and my energies, um, given that they are finite and that there is so much to accomplish, it must be done efficiently and it must be done wisely. But Patreon, for a dollar a month for it to start, to purchase access to the Patreon, um, gives you direct messaging, gives you live uh, chat access, uh, invitation to the Zoom rooms, uh, you know, definitely um, goes to funding my future projects and everything, and of course the more advanced tiers offer more exclusive content, and um, and direct access to um, the rumors of instinct, um, you know, channel in, in terms of understanding where it's going, what it's working on, um, you know, who my next guests will be, what my schedule will be like, a deferred productions, et cetera, et cetera. Behind the scenes, um, footage, rough drafts, et cetera, of notes, um, you know, shows, uh, videos that I'm making, long form documentaries, et cetera. Enough with that. Right. Just kind of have to kind of welcome everybody to season two. Today, the Rumors of Instinct podcast will be featuring, um, the subject of advanced cryptozoology. This is something that I've had a lot of difficulty in finding, a lot of difficulty in researching on the surface net because um, using Google, it brings up almost nothing, no hits on the subject of advanced cryptozoology. So mainstream media, so um, Smithsonian Institute controlled is the Google uh, sheep machine. Um, they should just call it sheeple. You know, they should just call it what it is. It's sheeple. Uh, so, I had to use a lot of the more obscure search engines. Uh, Dr. Go didn't even produce a lot of good results for advanced cryptozoology. Advanced cryptozoology, in that term, is also very new. It's very, very... Um, it's not new, it's very obscure, it's very avant-garde, even for people who are interested in the paranormal. When I first heard the subject, um, being a very serious cryptozoologist as of late, um, it seemed to kind of be an answer to a lot of the things I was thinking about, a lot of the concepts I was thinking about, studying on a multi-tier level, at, on a hybrid level, on a holistic level. Um, the study of cryptozoology either as individual species or in the ideas and realms of entire habitats, biomes, uh, you know, reworking of the entire system of like the food chain and, and the concepts of required land masses, nutritional values, things like that for uh, populations of these cryptids as well as the individual cryptids and then their specific details and things. Um, advanced cryptozoology, as I have heard it best described, is the study of cryptozoology at a more advanced level. It's easy as that. Whenever you hear the ideas of advanced, any subject, advanced uh, chemistry, advanced, it's a higher master level uh, where the core concepts are, are prerequisites. There's a lot of prerequisites. Um, study, but ultimately the goal is to further 
detail those core concepts, not to invalidate them and not to kind of, uh, it's, it makes sense that there'd be requisites in college. For example, time is limited and things must be efficiently, um, handled administrative wise so for example advanced physics would be your junior level your senior level classes because the ideas that you've already learned and are elevating yourself in thought so this advanced cryptozoology seems something that myself who has been spending his entire life studying uh, would would be you know the thing that satisfies my curiosity as well as allows me to kind of like set my roots in um, upon seeing that there's so little in terms of actually addressing the subject, then I realized I had to do a video about it. And not only that, create a lot more material and subjects based on the pursuit of better detailing the specific subjects which I consider advanced zoological, advanced uh, cryptozoological terms, advanced uh, cryptozoological subjects. So, not specifically just the um, learning, cataloging, and archiving of specific cryptids and sightings and witnesses and experts and theories um, that the layman has access to, but to understand things um, from an ac a higher level academic uh you know, expert level, um, approach, um, the same that say horticulture is not merely the archiving and tracking of plants. It is the understanding of the cellular structure and the chemical processes and the, uh, specific interactivities that plants have within their environments um, and the environments themselves, which would foster these plants and best produce, uh, you know, say, for example, the knowing climatology and knowing um, uh, geology in better pursuit of uh, agriculture. That's That would be considered horticulture. That would be considered an advanced level of horticulture. Not merely knowing different species, not merely sharing tales of, of the different attributes of them. Uh, you see, there's many levels, there's many tiers to it. This is why I think there's so little about advanced cryptozoology being written about and being spoken about. Because most people have not gotten over the hurdle or the obstacle that is even basic cryptozoology. The mainstream media has done such a good job at making this subject so obscure and making it so um, marginalized and disenfranchised from real serious pursuit that the only people who engage in it are themselves lacking in this education, lacking in this expertise. They are seeking it more for the oddity and more for the curiosity. These things are fine in themselves, but as a critical objective thinker, it is more like a, a, a road show. It's more like a sideshow atmosphere. And, and I'd say 90% of everything on the History Channel or on the Travel Channel 
um, your mainstream media outlets, like your your different internet blogs and things. Um, even most of the YouTube channels only handle cryptid sightings as a type of sensationalized um, distraction media, where if you're talking about Bigfoot, it's just the basic concepts that everyone's heard on a thousand different shows, the same stories everyone's heard, and it's meant just to get that demographic of people who are interested in it for the curiosity, for the fact that it's weird, for the fact that it's not normal, and for the fact that they have already relegated painted as a pseudoscience. And a lot of the people that they choose to show and speak to and talk about are pseudoscientists, are people without any scientific credibility, simply because they've already kind of associated the thing with incred with with um, incredulity, with um, you know this kind of um, glib persecution to it, a stigma. Like, you know, if, if you actually seriously considered these things, then you are moving further from the the desired path that they want you to be on. So, and, and it's obviously felt like that is that is extremely felt in the in the academic world. Right. So and the, I have the whole idea that that academics are curated and kept as useful idiots by secret societies. I understand the the idea of a great work, and I understand that there are societies such as the Freemasons, for example, that have kept academia in a world of skeptical nihilism and atheism, specifically because it completes a great work on their end, and that individual enlightenment and individual uh, intelligence is key to uh, both facilitating imagination and uh, having imagination facilitate the gathering of intelligence, the gathering of, uh, you know, further knowledge. And it, it's a positive uh, exponential growth at that point. So moving away from any hope of academia, we can still use what they consider to be reality, what they consider to be um, the real world, to better help ourselves understand the truth behind these cryptids and the possibilities that they, they pose. And the best way to do this is speculative zoology. If you look into the, the annals and the archives of real accepted sciences, right? Like this, we're not talking about pseudosciences. We're talking about actual real things that people are respected for. And, you know, like I'm not saying that cryptozoology is less real, but having already pre-asserted the fact that there are taboo subjects and, and subjects which are denied, uh, reality denial that in terms of what academia does offer, uh, paleontology and zoology are two great places to start. They have entire subgenres, which are actually extremely profitable for them, and they get a lot of uh, credibility. And they, they're called speculative, speculative zoology and speculative paleontology. These two fields of study 
for example, uh, have been featured in the Netflix series Alien Worlds. I believe it's called Alien Worlds. It's extremely popular. Uh, there have been several extremely popular uh, versions of them in the past, too, where real quote-unquote zoologists, biologists, professors, academic leaders, uh, institution leaders, etc., museums, uh, figures, they will discuss what they consider to be um, fact and then using their their imagination for the um, you know for for the entertainment value create what they expect to occur in the future that's always a very popular topic using real world science you know quote unquote real world science um mainstream science to project and imagine how evolution will occur and what, what evolution will bring in the next 500,000 years, 5 million, 500 million, etc. And there have been several shows featured on the Discovery Channel and on Animal Planet and, you know, Nat Geo, National Geographic. This is a thing. This is actually like a mainstream, highly profitable uh, use of their time and energy is to create these uh, imaginary uh, mind game think tank type scenarios where they'll imagine what life will be like on an earth without people, for example. What would happen if the dinosaurs never died out? And they will write and illustrate and publish books about, you know... Granted, yes, art books. Granted, yes, they are typically they started as individual people's just you know uh, flights of fancy that you know were treated as serious because the thing that validates them is this fundamental core aspect of scientific uh, mainstream knowledge. Like you're not just imagining a random you know collection of parts. To create a fanciful animal, you have to then explain your creation with some kind of anchoring system of like uh, plausibility and probability and precedence, where you're seeing that, you know, for example, uh, there is a very famous book where a speculative uh, zoologist created an entire world from hominids. So that there was like a bovine herd animal type hominid. There was like an Arctic version of a hominid. There was like a, a flying hominid. The, you know, like, and, and they used real science, say, for example, in bats, and they used the real skeletal system and ana anatomy of bats to create. You know, the like the flying hominid, they use the real anatomy and like uh, behavioral system uh, and diet of of herd animals like yaks, wild cows, cattle, uh, etc. Uh, to to kind of exp create their version of the herd uh, herbivore that that mankind could possibly evolve to be. Um and there are several different, um, very famous cases too, like where they, they talked about how an alien eco ecology could exist and, and try to cover as much variety as possible on how the different physics 
would affect the evolutionary tree of a planet. Say, for example, gravity, if it fluctuated, or say, for example, there was less gravity or more gravity, would produce entirely different, um, you know, evolutionary creations like uh, like species and 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 tracks and et cetera, et cetera. But the 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 goal is though, even though they are basing everything in science, they're allowing themselves to imagine at this point. They see, like you know, how how is this meant for good? Everything is meant for good. Um, even though they are limiting their imagination and they're trying to kind of make it um, less imaginative you know, more grounded in reality, more accurate of a simulation, it is still allowing themselves to imagine the possibilities, allowing themselves to kind of uh, create from thin air uh, what they, this mainstream media, this mainstream academia apparatus can consider possible. The same treatment and sympathy is not extended to cryptozoology at all. Everything that cryptozoology posits is immediately deemed a pseudoscience uh, and not given the same dignity that the speculative zoology, the speculative paleontology is given. Um, Another kind of fun detail about this is you can see a lot of the simulators, at least in my mind, what I'm trying to get at, between modern zoological art or modern uh, paleontological art where uh, there's a kind of a controversy because they're showing dinosaurs in new configurations, experimental configurations. Um, For example, feathers, uh, trunks, um, you know, prehensile tails, uh, colorful mating mating displays, um, you know, unorthodox nesting or birthing habits like a pouch for a kangaroo uh, on a dinosaur. Uh, These things are (laughs) apparently upsetting the communities of established paleo illustrators because they are considered too inventive, even though they are firmly rooted in like the the possibilities, so that they are natural probabilities and possibilities. And given that the mainstream scientific community holds that literally no one's ever seen a dinosaur uh, because they happened sixty five million years before humans evolved that we have a accurate mental picture of them that this new speculative uh, zoological representation disagrees with and comes into conflict with. And this is where you get the crux and the absurdity of cryptozoology being taboo, is that it's it's unscientific to dog to have dogma. It's unscientific to have beliefs in face of new evidence of new phenomenology, and it's unscientific to pursue subjects through their researchers and not through the subject. Even if a subject is researched and 
thought about by someone who is mistaken or ignorant or wrong or you just don't like them doesn't mean the subject itself is invalid. Even if they got a negative result doesn't mean that it disproves or disqualifies the subject. The subject is objective. And the concept that cryptozoology is actually... Uh, Exactly. It denigrated by people who are bad at cryptozoology uh, is absurd. And, and it, it, we need to have people who are not only good at science itself, but good at that treat cryptozoology as a science, not as a sideshow. And this is where I think the importance of advanced cryptozoology, or at least calling material that's serious, that's taken with a lot of integrity, that's taken with a lot of study, with a lot of uh, research and effort as advanced cryptozoology. Um, and I'd even like to open up the possibility that cryptozoology is removed as a name and all these efforts are called speculative zoology from now on. Because if speculative zoology is allowed to freely imagine ant creatures and life forms on Earth because it has a scientific foundation in zoology, but disregards everything that cryptozoology studies because of some perceived um, pseudoscientific agenda, then cryptozoology, if you can't beat them, join them and just call all its efforts speculative zoology which are as legitimate as if, say, for example, a bear scientist or an expert on bears would posit how a new, a new bear would be. You know, like if, if they were to imagine a bear that is a future bear or a past bear or a uh, unknown, mysterious, yet-to-be-discovered bear, an ursine, a cryptid ursine, um, and, and it's legitimate scientific... You know, posturing, it's legitimate scientific speculation, then it's a legitimate scientific speculation to understand that the Jersey Devil could be a real thing if approached with the same level of um, expertise, not only in uh, the Jersey Devil mythology which is uh, the type of crypto-connectivity to anthropology and to urban legend, which most cryptozoology, I'd say 90% of cryptozoology nowadays, is entirely on legend, urban legend, and mythology. Um, but we need to uh, focus on environment, habitat, uh, weather, um, concepts of advanced mammalian biology, concepts of, of avian biology, um, precedence um, and, and and the evolutionary ladder as already taught as already you know like accepted um, the possibility of how evolution could produce a new animal without any precedent um, the different factors common throughout the sightings like studying sightings and treating uh, the data as um, you know relevant to creating future sightings or to kind of predict and control the the experience, um, not just treating it as an aberration or as something that didn't happen until it's proven to have happened. You know, like um, just using real, um, you know, uh, 
analysis and analytic uh, tools, like like objective thinking tools, to to really um, you know create an accurate picture of our environment and to not r- simply limit our research to the the archetypes or to the the famous uh, uh, memes or the the stereotypes like. Native American, like Native American legends, and their understanding of the forest is far more complex um, in the Native American area than just Sasquatch and just the Thunderbird and those two, and like Wendigos and maybe Skinwalkers. They have a huge library of thousands and thousands of of different creatures, which are not currently accepted. In um, the white man science, the Western science, um, the the idea that the Native American forest lacks genetic diversity beyond a a mythical large ape, it is already known as the second most biodiverse area on Earth, second only to the Amazon jungle. And yet people think that Sasquatch is like the only thing that's possibly... There are probably hundreds, if not thousands, of large mammals yet to be discovered in the North American woods. In the North American forests, the national parks, the mountain ranges. Um, Many, many, many people don't even... like, Like, the vast majority of people cannot even conceive of the fact that in one-fourth of all the land in North America, it is unexplored. To this day, they think that frontiers don't exist. They think that mankind is literally everywhere and knows literally everything. This is very untrue. <laughs> and that, that even in America, the 50 states or the lower 48 excluding Alaska, that one-fourth of the, of the territory is still unexplored and only surveyed by the air. And not low-flying surveyors or helicopters, but by actual recon satellites. Like, there were large portions of South America still yet to be mapped. And, and that's just North America. Africa... Southeast Asia, the jungles of India, Australia, uh, most of the world is wild. To this very day, most of the world is wild. Many of the, much of the world has not been walked by men. And don't even get me started on the oceans, which are I, even even less explored. Even less explored. And the, and the actual explorations that they have accomplished, they will never, never disclose. And so the concept of speculative zoology, the concept of, of thinking about these unknown frontiers, it's as scientifically legitimate it's as academically legitimate it's as intelligent and wise as if though a man in Europe would speculate on the animals yet to be discovered in the new lands of the new world like you know when imagine being a Spanish 
natural philosopher and you hear tale of the Christopher Columbus discovering the new world, yes, you use your powers, you use your intelligence to imagine what is to be discovered, what creatures can exist out there. You know, if you can't go yourself, it's perfectly all right to imagine because you because if you used your your actual knowledge cuz it translates universally then you would be able to imagine you know fairly accurately the birds the the different species that lived here um deer for example both in Europe and North America you know uh, there are many wolves both in Europe and North America You know, and I'm not saying that that you would get it right 100% of the time, but it's absolutely legitimate. It's absolutely worth an effort to do it. So when we get into advanced cryptozoology, we're going to be doing that. We're going to be imagining these species as someone who can't go to those lands, but will use the knowledge of the lands that they understand, they've already seen, to kind of uh, paint, to illustrate the world. And it's made different species, it's made different taxa. For example, exploration of the oceans. Right? I can only use and stand on the shoulders of giants when it comes to the exploration of the deep oceans. At the same time, I think that if through proper application and, and real thought, both in, in, in terms of oceanography and both in terms of uh, marine biology, you can, you can firmly can, you know, come, up with a, come up with arguments for uh, the existence of tremendously sized creatures, as well as the, the sheer numbers data open to the possibility of discovery of smaller creatures, the many, many different hundreds of thousands of millions and possibly billions of creatures yet to be discovered. Um, advanced cryptozoology also works on terms of understanding a creature's nature and behavior in terms of, of abstracts, in terms of, say, intelligence, or in uh, behavior, are in terms of life cycle and not just in the, the physical terms of life cycle, but the ideas of um, going into behaviorology, going into migratory patterns, things like that, like how likely it is for a creature to migrate, what environments they'd migrate to and what d patterns of behavior they display during these migrations. Um, you know, that's, that's relevant thought, and if applied to cryptozoological creatures, it qualifies as advanced cryptozoology. That's what I'm hoping to kind of get across, and, and, and um, you know, basically um, studying individual cases, hoping to create accurate, larger pictures of environments and realities that we exist in. For example, using the oceans, uh, the giant octopuses, um, giant octopi, not giant squids, but giant octopi, being individual rea uh, creatures, being a separate species, and why that is a gateway into understanding the realities, the probabilities of 
entire ecosystems created by large cephalopods. And the domination that cephalopods have in deep sea biomes and in all marine biomes, really, if you would just appropriate the fact of their scale and their intelligence and their resourcefulness and the actual geography that they live in. Um, For example, the Luska. The Luska can be approached generically or with generic cryptozoology, uh, basic level cryptozoology, as simply a shark octopus. Like, you know, the comp, like if you can't even get over the hurdle of the local traditional name, which is the colloquial name, which is shark octopus or octopus shark, which is um, what its native language in the Bahamans is, Luska. Uh, if you think in your mind's eye of a shark with tentacles, that's like saying if you think with your mind's eye the name tiger shark and you think of a, a tiger with a shark fin in a tail, then you're just not even in the ballpark. You're not even ready. You're not, you're not even thinking seriously about it. But if you start thinking that it could be an octopus with demonstrable behavior like a shark, where it swims freely in open waters or maybe has a, a, a tubular body shape, like a hydrodynamic body shape, because of convergent evolution, you could... Maybe more of a rigid body structure. Maybe it's their way of talking about a giant squid because squids have swimming behaviors that are more akin to sharks than the bottom-dwelling flounder-like behavior of an octopus. So then you start thinking this is a tribal islander who is explaining things through his expertise of other animals much like ours is, but they're just it's a common accepted term so they don't need to work on it then you start thinking about the behavior patterns and their habitat which is the blue holes these large subterranean caverns and then you think that it could also be um, very probable that these creatures use these blue holes as highways that interconnect and that the depth of the hole is actually deeper than the surrounding ocean, giving them even, like, uh, paradoxically, more area to exist in and to, to say they have a deep sea-like ecosystem available to them that's not available to other surrounding animals, giving them pocket ecosystems and evolutionary... Um, possibilities, you know, deep sea gigantism being one of them. Now, the concept of their environments like can best be summed up in incredible environments give way to, to create incredible creatures. Incredible environments create incredible creatures, and that is that without going too much into detail at first into the Luska is exactly the philosophy that we'll be using. And that is that in all things, the environment first is what creates, is what, you know, inspires the creature, is what allows the creature to exist. And the creature is more a product of the environment, like we all are, like everything is. You know, an earth first uh, perspective in this advanced cryptozoology, an earth first perspective in this speculative zoology effort. And to understanding every single individual cryptid, you know, not because we think Bigfoot exists outside of time and space, for example, 
and we think there is just one of them. That's what I'm saying, like how generic and and uh, even when you start getting into the actual science behind it, still they try to keep it like it's a creature that's that's having to navigate and it's not from this environment. When when all creatures in their natural environments are manifestations of the energies of the earth that created them. The Sasquatch creature is as much of the earth as a tree is. And just like how a tree naturally exists in the forests, the Sasquatch naturally exists in the forests. Yet you can't separate them as a concept. Um, just like how the ocean currents exist and the ocean depths exist and the the volcanic activity exists, these giant sea creatures, these giant sea monsters exist. It's it's all part of it. It's all part, it's all interconnected. Like without one you can't have the other, without the other you can't have the one. And so it's the same thing that we didn't we couldn't imagine in the scientific capacity that life could exist on the bottoms of the oceans because we failed to un- we didn't we were ignorant about how the bottoms of the oceans even operated and now that we do know they exist we are then open to all the thousands of different creatures that you know subsequently we discovered um we never, as a speculative zoological community or as a cryptozoological community, go out at first to find these rumored creatures. It's not creature-specific. It's environment-specific. A good aspect of this would be to seek biomes and environments and ecologies that are unknown. In search of unknown ecologies. In search of unknown ecosystems. Um... You know, the search of frontiers, environments which are speculated are possible, um, but have no real evidence for, no proof of, because the world still has a lot of undiscovered frontier land. Um, For example, tropical Antarctica, a geologically isolated polar and tropical. Um, borderland could produce incredibly diverse uh, life forms as well as a subterranean uh, a subterranean uh, lake you know which we know exists aquifers and things we know that we we reuse them We, we, we just have not explored them and we don't treat them as, you know, ecologies. We don't treat them as environments. We treat them as curiosities. In many, in many aspects, the mainstream scientific community treats these terrestrial biomes as they do the surface of the moon or the surface of any planet. In fact, they explore the surface of Mars in mainstream science much more than they, they explore the caverns and caves of the earth you know and it's it's absolutely because mainstream science wants to uh, play keep away with the ability to perform 
this kind of uh, illumination service, this kind of education service. And they want to keep it where it's impossible for the everyday person to be connected to discovery. And this mentally pressures the individual to kind of uh, giving up and just surrendering. Because if, like I said, I don't have no ability to explore the bottoms of any oceans. The Gulf of Mexico, Atlantic, Pacific, uh, let alone... Arctic or North Atlantic. Uh, now, does that mean I have no right to think about it? Does that mean I have no right to study it? Does that mean I have no ability to understand anything about it because I can't go? And that's exactly why they keep people from Antarctica. You as a as civilian just can't move there because it's theirs. And as long as you can't go, you have to listen to them because there's no real way for you to see it for yourself. And that's what they do with everything, is they exclude you from it. And over time, this is really a fight for that, is that you have to u- allow yourself to be able to say, I can understand the realities of this from a sh- purely imaginative and mental aspect. I can use my mind's eye and imagine the realities of this situation using grounded, rational intelligence. Right? Objective thinking, using the experiences I already have, and using what I know to be real, I can then help myself see where I'm not. Like, help myself see what I can't see, help myself, like, you know, understand these things which are currently mysterious to me, and and get those answers. Tap into that Akashic record, tap into that truth, right? And then you get the download, then you get the, what they call the download, the upload. Um... It's your imagination. Imagination's not folly. And they have you thinking that your imagination is a bad thing. Where if you imagine anything and it is not uh, intelligent, it is not an actual thing to like for intelligence. Leonardo da Vinci used his imagination. Einstein uses imagination. The greatest thinkers and geniuses in history, um, Tesla, imagined what they did before they did it using the knowledge and skills that they had and thus getting smarter and smarter and smart. Tesla would make everything he made from nuts and bolts in his head. How, what parts he would use, how much wiring he needed, uh, what it would look like, how he would fix it and like, you know, make it work and what, you know, in his head, his, his workshop was in his head. Before he even laid it out to start, he had already finished it in his head. The power of imagination is what geniuses use. That is genius. That is the Greek word for genius. Zoologist, biologist, cryptozoologist, marine biologist, they use it too. But they don't want the everyday person to do it because they would no longer be experts in the animal sciences and and nature and biology, which is something the everyday person has the ability to do. Uh, Because if you study anthropology, the number one universal aspect of all people is a knowledge of animals, is a knowledge and mastery of animals. That the everyday person has an encyclopedic knowledge 
of the animals in their lives. That's why we have the study of biology in the first place. Because mankind has an overwhelming curiosity and appreciation and love for the beasts of the earth. In the Old Testament, in Genesis, Adam is tasked with going forth and naming the creatures of the garden. It is mankind's literal first task from a heavenly power is to go forth and name animals as we discover them. Because that is really the closest to a baseline innocence in our purpose is simply to go and discover what is yet to be discovered and simply to go explore what there is to be explored in a very childlike innocence return to the garden way that the noblest use of mankind's knowledge and intelligence and imagination and wisdom is thinking about the beasts and creatures of the, of the earth you know, of the seas and of the air. Um, you know, and I, I, it's one of those things where as long as you have your foundation and your roots, you can take as much inventive risk and logic, as I, and just imaginative leaps and, and just go crazy with your imagination. Because even if it's inaccurate, to what the real world model is, you know, it's still worth considering because we don't know for sure. For example, no one's ever seen uh, blue whales mating. No one's ever recorded a video of blue whales mating. The largest known sea creature that we have officially have discovered, the blue whale, the animal they say is the largest creature to have ever existed, and they say that with confidence. Go look up any encyclopedia. Google it right now. The mainstream scientific response that you get on Wikipedia and anything is the blue whale is the largest animal to have ever in history of the earth to exist. And we don't have one photo of them fucking. That's right. As far as we know, blue whales just pop out of thin air because we've never seen one just fuck another one. And you think, if mankind is so smart and so deadly that we almost killed all the blue whales and, and you know, we're so, we're so bad for the oceans and we're everywhere and there's nothing, there's no mysteries. We've explored every square inch of the earth. We have satellites looking down and watching it at every time. Noah's taking, you know, fingerprints from whales and you know, DNA samples from rhinos to clone them and stuff, and that mammoths are going to be resurrected. There is not one scientific community on Earth right now that can show you some blue whale porn. Don't you think National Geographic, with all their cameras and all their money, and, you know, fucking David Attenborough, and, like, all their, all their global-spanning reach of filming... Like, you know, hummingbirds and slow motion and things that they they would love to film a blue whale fuck. They just can't do it. You know why? Because the ocean and that animals are not to be underestimated and that there's a lot of unknowns to this world. Most of the world has never been witnessed by human eyes. This world was not made by man. This world may have been made for men, for mankind. 
but it was made as a mystery. And we have long, long ago forgotten what our task was. This is why it's still a new science. And this is why they still, they hate, hate, hate cryptozoology. They hate cryptozoologists. They hate cryptids and academia. The easiest way to lose friends is to say you believe in Bigfoot. The easiest way to get laughed at behind your back is to say you believe in the Loch Ness Monster. The easiest way you get someone to roll your eyes is to say you believe in, like, the Jersey Devil or Mothman or, um, you know, um, any, let's pick a cryptid, say you believe in it, people are going to fucking talk shit about you. That's what they do. They hate cryptozoology because it's closer to God than anyone wants to talk about, which is saying that you submit to the power of the earth, you submit to the power of nature, and you know that you don't know. Like the, the, like the Operation Ivy song. You, you admit that all you know is nothing. And all you know is that you don't know. And we have to use what we know to imagine what we don't know. It's as simple as that. Same thing that science does. It's the same thing that science is doing. Same thing that paleontology is doing. And in doing so, we no longer exist as cryptozoologists. But in studying advanced cryptozoology, we become speculative zoologists, speculative marine biologists, speculative uh, anthropologists. And we, we no longer exist in a type of fugue state or a type of sideshow or a type of oddity. We exist as real, legitimate academics. We exist as real, acad- real legitimate geniuses. And people with pioneering vision, people who are willing to use um, real mainstream science and facts to discover what lies beyond the horizon, what lies right in the unexplored wilderness, the frontier. And they really are afraid of that, and they hate that, because this is why, you know, Google doesn't show advanced cryptozoology, doesn't show cryptozoological research or or results. It's the same thing with conspiracy theories of any kind. Same thing with UFOs, same thing with the secret space program. They, They know we live in a zoo, and they want us to keep us from seeing the people on the outside. Let's just say that. They don't want us to venture so far because they know the most dangerous thing, I mean the most motivated thing, not the most dangerous thing for them, and the thing that motivates men the most is the sense of exploration, is a sense of being the first, is the sense of being... Uh, wild and free and being Christopher Columbus being uh, Magellan being um, you know Captain Cook sailing Marco Polo sailing around the world um, really claiming and naming um, things for our own and that's exactly it too is because 
they know that they the more that's discovered, unless they discover it and their people discover it, the more the less they have. If, if they discovered if we discovered these new species, if we discovered and we we're instrumental in their study, they would have to share. They would have to share what's on their plate. And remember, they wanted to make a big club that you're not invited to. And there's a reason why the Smithsonian Institute was controlled by the British. There's a reason why the British have the Royal Academic Society. And there's a reason why the sun never sets on the British Empire. And a lot of these, what people call cryptids and what people call environments of mystery and frontiers are neglected and they're kept secret and they're suppressed because of the British influence and control of the scientific discourse that I call mainstream academia. But unless the British Freemason Party, uh, their grand, grand design, their pro-humanist, heliocentric, Darwin-worshipping, uh, Anglophilic uh, worldview where they believe that if it's not from England, then it's a derivative understanding of reality and doesn't exist, then they put that mindset into everyone's life. The, the idea of colonialism, they colonialized the concepts of mankind's relationship with their very environment. And if you watch uh, Forrest Galante's uh, television program, for example, when he goes to things like Indonesia, when he goes to things like Africa, places like Africa, uh, or, or places like America, it doesn't matter the local population. They all have the same ignorance and passivity and disconnection from their local environments, their traditional homes. People from, for example, Louisiana have as much and as little to do with their natural environment as people from Madagascar and people from Jakarta. And that's why the sun never sets on the British Empire, is because while the, the British Empire doesn't control nearly anything of the world, they control all the schools, and everyone's forced into these schools and given the British education that teaches you that there is no uh, frontier, there's nothing new, and there's nothing that's cool. And, you know, only the, the white man's world exists. That all the creatures were named in the garden. And that, um, you know, God is dead. And that's going to be the end of the first hour. I'm going to be trying a new format this season. Um, kind of lining up everything, finalizing everything, getting into a sense of I like it, I'm happy with it. Uh, this first hour is going to be publicly available on my podcast forms, my directories, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Overcast, Breaker, etc., Anchor. Um, but the second hour is going to be exclusive to Patreon, it's going to delve a little bit more into detail involving specific advanced cryptozoological concepts and cryptids. And I'm going to be um, reserving that for people who purchase access to it. For as little as a dollar a month, 
you can purchase access to this exclusive content, which is going to be uploaded to YouTube as a private video, and the, the link to it distributed out uh, via Patreon to all the Patreons. Uh, for as little as a dollar a month, you can support independent journalism. You can support this podcast. Um, like I said, all proceeds go to pre-existing bills uh, to keep this podcast running and to uh, pay for future equipment and to fin- finish and finalize uh, production on a number of ongoing projects. So check out Patreon, patreon.com slash rumors of instinct podcast. Patreon.com slash Rumors of Instinct Podcast. Thank you all very much for your support for this long, watching for the first hour. Uh, If you're catching this um, on one of the podcast elements, check out my YouTube, check out my Instagram, at Rumors of Instinct. And definitely hope to see you guys there. Thank you for your support. Follow me uh, wherever you can. Check it out for daily updates, notifications, memes, humor, etc. God bless you, namaste, and shalom. Iron sharpens iron, a friend sharpens a friend. I have been Rumors of Instinct, and this has been the Rumors of Instinct podcast. And yes, welcome to the second hour. If you're listening to this on podcast format, this part is going to be exclusive as a bridge and a preview to the Patreon-exclusive content, you know, help those who are on the fence uh, maybe make the decision to support independent journalism, to support the Rumors of Instinct podcast and its future productions and its current goals of being able to financially compensate its guests for interviews and for their time and expertise in future collaborative episodes. Now, as little as a dollar will gain you entry, will purchase you access, a ticket for a dollar. Uh, ticket price at the gate is a dollar. To gain access to exclusive um, members only Patreon exclusive uh, content. And this audio will be featured in a link that's posted and available to all the Patreons. Thus, if you follow that link, you'll be able to watch a private video on YouTube featuring exclusive video content, exclusive imagery, exclusive audio, and exclusive commentary that'll be uncensored, that'll be uh, relevant to topic, as well as um, eye-opening, really uh, intense academic type thought, like really good scholarly work on it. The reason why I have to make it Patreon exclusive is because if I left it out for the open, it will be attacked and, um, you know, absolutely be a battle zone and I don't want an educational opportunity to be um, you know basically I want to make it exclusive to people who support this who are serious about this who you know um, this is a filter for all the shills the bots the real world propagandists that intelligence organizations militaries around the world uh, Illuminati figures antagonistic to the empowerment and enlightenment of mankind they use online um, platforms like YouTube uh, as as battlefields to discourage and demoralize. And I know it sounds kind of kind of weird that a dollar is can defeat them, but for as little as a dollar, it filters out all the uh, fake accounts. It filters out all that because Patreon has a pretty good security system uh, in place. 
the direct messaging that is, you know, available to my members afterwards, um, all those messages will be answered, whereas comments on the general public, the quote-unquote free uh, social media sites like Instagram and YouTube, um, you know, I just, there were so many um, dozens and dozens of messages every day. And many of them are uh, double agents, triple agents, antagonistic forces, etc. The more I tell the truth, the more I keep with this program, with this mission, the more intense the resistance is. It's because of that that I'm asking for um, my true fans, my true supporters, the real human beings out there in the audience to uh, purchase a dollar entry ticket to become a Patreon member at the most basic tier for $1 a month and to have the access to direct messaging me to the live chats, to these exclusive video links and uh, definitely know that your money is being spent to funding future projects and to financially supporting my guests and my interviews as well as uh, paying for the sunk costs in operating this uh, studio and LLC. That'll be enough for my shilling right now. What I want to use this opportunity to bridge is in the next hour, uh, Patreon exclusive hour, I'm going to be highlighting and showcasing what I think is the best available series, mini-series on YouTube by a really talented producer named Benji Thomas on speculative zoology, speculative evolution, and these three upcoming videos that I'm going to talk about, I'm only going to feature one for the free podcast exclusive um, uh, version of this, which is the first in a series of three. I'm not going to add any of my commentary, and I'm just going to allow the audio to play. Know that in the Patreon exclusive, I provide my commentary, I provide uh, the visuals, I provide the um, actual video itself and um, about 30 minutes of commentary with a spread between the three. So this is obviously my first uh, effort foray into Patreon exclusive content, but I feel like it's both intimate as well as itself a great love letter introduction to this field of imagination driven uh, natural philosophy now I'll explain in the Patreon exclusive why that links to cryptozoology and how those same um, compliments that are paid to these founding members in this material um, could equally be paid towards all the cryptozoologists and you know from past present and future So thank you very much for listening to the Rumors of Instinct podcast. Thank you very much for your support, obviously. Um, You know, namaste and shalom. Uh, Iron sharpens iron, a friend sharpens a friend. And this kind of open source uh, research and uh, academia is meant to save everyone time. I know, first of all, statistically... YouTube is filled with literally millions of channels, literally millions of uh, different channels um, spread across an entire international, you know, hundreds of, of nationalities and countries and languages. I know that there's always filters and algorithms at work, uh, but realistically, sharing this content not only helps, you know, 
bring people to their channel, but I'm not, say, for example, exploiting an unknown person. This, this channel itself has hundreds of thousands of subscribers and views. Um, I believe actually millions of subscribers. But the statistics still show that out of 400 million Americans, that's only, you know, uh, one-fourth of one percent of the entire country actually has subscribed and, and seen and been aware of these videos. Um, even though it's extremely high six-digit six numbers, you know, low sevens, that uh, you would think everyone in the country has seen it. 400 million Americans mean that less than 1% of the country has subscribed and viewed these videos. So if I'm helping you guys see it for the first time, this is that know that that's why I'm doing it. It's because this word needs to get out. This information needs to get out. We're already in 2020, and most of the world is existing like in dark ages still, where information is not readily shared. That, much like the cryptozoology, biology world that I was talking about, there's a lot of mystery to the world. There's still a lot to be discovered, a lot to be explored. And unfortunately, the powers to be, the great design, the great work, has everyone being really cynical and thinking that they know everything and they see everything and that the internet is transparent and that things that they know about everyone knows about and really they need to realize how isolated and how separated everybody really is and that the true math even shows that while we have 400 million Americans it's divided in nearly 400 um you know, 400 different directions, 400 different pieces, and that each piece is only, you know, misses 399 other pieces of the puzzle. You know, like, you have so many different worlds and communities and little pocket cultures and societies, and that you think there would be transparent communication even amongst the most mainstream, and you know, there just is not somebody watching the travel channel and watching Bigfoot programs uh, might have the mind and the mentality, the attitude for this, but because they live in, a, let's say, Wisconsin in a geographic area, <coughs> say, um, with, with maybe bad internet connection, maybe they are just in a different community that doesn't really use, you know, YouTube, um, they, they may not hear this material and they could be in a big city you could be in New York city. And, and just because your particular neighborhood and your culture is not oriented to the stuff, even though it's like, for free and it already has millions of subscribers and everything to it, you know, it's still obscure. It's still in the shadows. It's still, um, it's still a discovery to make, right? And as I said, like everyone is always making these discoveries, even though the information has already been there and has actually been quite popular within different circles. Because if you spread out that 800,000, that 100,000, or that, uh, that million of people that watched it, you know, over the country, it becomes a very small amount here and there all over the place. You know, and then you do that globally, and then you count for repeats, and then you count for things like that.
you know, and it turns out that fewer and fewer people are actually are hearing this information, even though it may seem like mainstream if you if you saw the data and looked at the figures and didn't know any better. You might think, oh, everyone's seen this video. And then you realize, actually, no, it's, the Internet is still very, very rare to, to, you know, when people do discover things and then to get that word across. So hopefully there's some intersectional uh, cross-promotion there and everything. Um, I think the work that he that Benji Thomas did is incredible. So, you know, Patreon exclusive, you'll be seeing, you'll, you'll be able to hear and see the actual videos uh, that Ben J. Thompson made, all three of them back to back to back with commentary, with, uh, you know, added relevance to it, things like that. So consider donating for a dollar to purchase your ticket to become a patron. Once you become an official patron, then uh, that dollar gives you direct messaging abilities, uh, access to an exclusive live chat, access to this exclusive material that's going to be produced full-time, um, you know, and that's just the start. There are different additional tiers with different um, exclusive content and, and more access to Rumors of Instinct myself uh, directly. So thank you very much. Namaste and shalom. Enjoy this first, you know, preview of my first uh, Patreon exclusive uh, the video. And like I said, namaste and shalom, iron sharpens iron, and a friend sharpens a friend. I have been Rumors of Instinct with the Rumors of Instinct podcast. Thank you all very, very much, very sincerely. Speculative zoology is an incredibly fun topic to talk and think about. Imagining your own creatures and coming up with unique anatomies, behaviors, and evolutionary histories for them seems so appealing to many people. And such projects have become a significant presence in pop culture within the last century at least. Spec Zoo can also serve some effective educational purposes, although in many cases it is mostly a form of entertainment, since it just seems so cool to think about all the possible alternative evolutionary outcomes for various animals in the history, or indeed future, of Earth. The great popularity of speculative zoology undoubtedly has a lot to do with the iconic book After Man by geologist Dougal Dixon. Effectively starting the more modern interest in this subject, it is an integral piece of work in the history of speculative zoology. Since I recently obtained the 2018 re-release of this fantastic book, I thought now would be a good time to make a video looking back at the complete history of this science-based art form, as a sort of tribute to the incredible worlds and ideas that have been born from these works, as well as the impact they have had on science. First of all, we need to define exactly what is meant by speculative zoology. You may also have heard of the terms speculative evolution and speculative biology, and they're sort of interchangeable. However, here I am going by paleontologist Darren Nash's distinction. Speculative zoology is a subset of speculative evolution and biology, but it is only the part that focuses on the alternate or future evolution of animals. So that's excluding aliens, basically, since that would involve a far longer, more complicated history. It also only includes animals that are inferred to have evolved and changed over time. So not the creatures seen on old maps, since they were not thought to have evolved, but to simply exist as they were. Obviously, the boundaries of what you could count as speculative zoology are not exactly crystal clear, but these are the criteria I'm following here anyway. So then. What exactly was the earliest example of speculative zoology? 
Well, in an interview with Dougal Dixon, he explained how one of his inspirations for After Man was H.G. Wells's book, The Time Machine. First published in 1895, this novel inspired and popularized a lot of things, such as the concept of time travel using a machine and also, it seems, possibly the idea of speculative zoology. In the story of the time machine, the time traveler first goes several hundred thousand years forward into the future, encountering two species that have descended from humans, the Eloi and the Morlocks. The Eloi are the peaceful species that inhabit the surface of this future Earth, but they are afraid of the night when the brutal subterranean Morlocks come out and capture Eloi to feed on them. After he had visited this time period, the Traveller continues to journey into the future, next going a further 30 million years. This brings him to a time where giant crab-like organisms are ruling the planet, and it's apparently this part specifically that proved to be an inspiration for Dixon. But before we get into Dixon's works, there are actually a few other projects that, while not specifically influences on After Man, nevertheless can still be classified as speculative zoology and are therefore deserving of mention in this video. The first of these is the fictional world known as Pellucidar, featured in a series of books written by author Edgar Rice Burroughs, the creator of Tarzan. Pellucidar is a world inside our own Earth and is able to be accessed through a polar tunnel, Within this other world, there are many species of prehistoric animals, in addition to speculative organisms, such as the Mahars, giant intelligent pterosaurs with telekinetic abilities, and giant ants, which are in turn preyed on by giant mammals known as ant bears. There are also various populations of primitive humans that have formed civilizations. The first entry in this series of books was published in 1914, and the final entry in 1963. And there was actually even a crossover story at one point in which Tarzan visited Pellucidar. Next, we have Last and First Men, a story of the near and far future, a novel from 1930 authored by Olaf Stapledon. This appears to be the first notable instance of a concept we see a few times in later Spexu projects, that of a future history of our own species. The book covers the next 2 billion years of human development, and follows the 17 different human species that come after the current one. The future species undergo periods of being sentient, technology-using people that design more species, to declining back into savagery once their civilizations collapse, and throughout the future history the humans move between various planets in our solar system, eventually designing a species that can live on Neptune. In the end, the sun destroys the solar system faster than it can be escaped, and so the final humans engineer a virus to spread out into the universe and trigger the evolution of more sentient life forms. This work has been pretty influential on many other writers, and as I mentioned, we will again be encountering some similar concepts that may have been inspired by Last and First Men. Moving to 1957, we come to an absolutely hilarious episode in this history. The Invention of the Rhinograids, or Snouters. Originally published in German and later translated to English, an entire book was written about these made-up creatures. But the great thing was that it was made to look entirely serious, written in a very technical style and as if these animals really did once exist on our planet, and it's since become a famous joke amongst scientists. Authored by zoologist Gerald Steiner, the book is credited to the fictional Harald Stumke, who was a Rhinogradentia researcher, and the work is stated to be the only known record of these fascinating animals. 
The reason that no other trace of the snouters exist is that they were native to an archipelago in the South Pacific, and tragedy struck their island homes when nuclear weapons testing in the late 1950s resulted in the entire archipelago sinking into the sea, killing off all the rhinograts, along with every single snouter researcher since they all happened to be attending a conference on one of the islands at the same time. So, Stumpke's account of these animals is sadly the only surviving record of them. The order Rhinogradentia contains some pretty remarkable organisms too, with over 100 different species documented in a publication. The most notable feature of these animals was a characteristic known as the Nasorium, a nose-like piece of anatomy that had evolved to perform all sorts of various tasks amongst the many species, such as locomotion and different feeding methods. All these fantastic snouters had originally evolved from a single shrew-like ancestor that found its way to the island chain, and in this way the rhinograts are a great way of illustrating how animals can evolve in strange ways in island environments, which was apparently Steiner's initial intention. So we now skip forward to 1981, when the landmark After Man, A Zoology of the Future is first published. The process that went into creating this project is really quite remarkable, and involved Dixon firstly creating the whole world of Afterman by illustrating all the creatures that inhabited 50 million years from now, and working out their rough evolutionary history and some adaptations to the surrounding environment. Knowing how to present his idea to a publisher, since he worked in publishing himself at the time, he was immediately picked up when he suggested it, and the book began to be created. The artwork actually seen in the book, however, is not Dixon's art, but instead the work of various other artists who used the original illustrations that had been created to base their art on. Dixon also apparently made some physical models of the animals in his world, and had even produced some stop-motion animations involving the creatures. But the book is not just artworks of fanciful creatures, there's a great deal of science in Afterman too. In fact, the book, or at least the 2018 re-release that I've read, begins with an introduction to many important aspects of real, up-to-date biology, setting up the book as the educational material it was meant to be. Part of the justification for the whole project is that it is illustrating how evolution and biology actually work, but using hypothetical examples. Afterman does a very good job of this, particularly in the information about the different environments that separate each section of the book, which explain what the area is like, and therefore the ways in which the future animals have adapted to them makes sense and encourages you to think about how these changes really could happen. But also, it's just a lot of fun to read about and imagine a future Earth filled with unusual yet oddly familiar animals that have descended from organisms we can see around us today. Some of my favourite examples from Afterman have to be the Raboon, the Vortex, and the Nightstalker. The Raboon, which includes a few different species, are the descendants of modern baboons that became fully carnivorous and have convergently evolved to resemble the large non-avian theropods of the Mesozoic as they hunt and scavenge on tropical grasslands. The Vortex is the largest animal alive at the time of After Man, and is a giant baleen whale-like creature that evolved from penguins. It even has adaptations of its beak that allow it to filter feed on plankton. The Nightstalker is great too. It's a giant flightless bat that hunts in packs at night. Nightstalkers walk on their front limbs, since they were the location of most of the large muscles used in flight by their ancestors, and their hind legs, used for grasping, hang over the top of the forelimbs and act as hands. 
It seems clear that After Man inspired a lot of subsequent works, since it was really the first example of a huge world-building project with a thought-out natural history for each of its inhabitants. And once it was published, the idea of speculative zoology became much more widespread. An interesting project that was actually not inspired by Afterman, but represents the next major development in speculative zoology, was the creepy-looking dinosauroid that first appeared in an article published in 1982, called Reconstruction of the Small Cretaceous Theropod Stenonychosaurus inequalis and a Hypothetical Dinosauroid. Now, the whole story of this creature is very interesting, as actual science was used and applied in its creation. However, there seem to be some very fundamental flaws in the design, seemingly having something to do with the personal views of the scientists responsible for the project. Of course, this is always potentially an issue with any example of speculative evolution, but it's particularly prevalent with the dinosauroid. The basic idea is that if non-avian dinosaurs had never become extinct, then intelligent species may have developed at some point. Based on research done on troodontid brain size that was coming out at the time, paleontologist Dale Russell and taxidermist Ron Seguin attempted to reason what a troodontid descendant with a human-level intelligence might look like, and produced a model of the hypothetical animal, named the dinosauroid. Looking at a lot of different animals for reference, they argued that a larger brain would cause a shortening of the face, the loss of a number of teeth, and the need to support the enlarged head directly vertical over the rest of the body, resulting in an upright stance, in addition to the loss of the tail. They also concluded that the legs of the creature would evolve to become very human-like, since they had adopted a human-like stance, and therefore the feet would also change from being digitigrade to plantigrade like our species. For this, they looked at plantigrade tree kangaroos. The result is an eerily human-looking creature, even complete with a navel betraying its supposedly viviparous nature, and it's generally agreed by a lot of paleontologists today that it is far too human-looking. Although a lot of comparative anatomy was employed, and the authors did explain all the decisions they made, as well as suggesting they may have been biased, the overall design really does seem to suggest that the authors believe the humanoid shape is inevitable and will always convergently evolve eventually. There are some clear issues with this idea, since it implies a belief that the human body structure is just the best one, and is needed in order for intelligence to arise in an organism. But in reality, there's no reason for this to be the case. The way our bodies look is the result of our specific evolutionary history and our position as primates. An intelligent species that's a member of a totally different lineage would look more similar to the other members of that lineage than to our own species. Additionally, it's not like troodontids and other non-avian dinosaurs were even that exceptionally intelligent to begin with, more on the level of emus and opossums, and not close to ancient hominid or chimpanzee intelligence as has been suggested. As a result of all this, there was an understandably mixed reaction from the paleontological community at the time the dinosauroid was revealed, with some people praising it for encouraging provocative thought, and others criticizing the clearly human resemblance. Today, the dinosauroid is not taken as a particularly serious idea of what potential intelligent non-avian dinosaurs could look like, but it still represents a significant piece of this history.
Inspired by recent discussions of the dinosauroid, paleoartist C.M. Kozman has actually reconstructed a much more plausible intelligent dinosaur called Avisapiens saurotheos, which is very notably not humanoid, but instead displays features and characteristics shared by its dinosaurian ancestors, while also being modified as a greater level of intelligence evolved. So the dinosauroid stands out as a weird but fascinating part of the development of speculative zoology. Right, we're going to have to stop there for now. I was originally planning on doing this video in one whole part, but as is so often the case, I've run out of time again, so...